connecting this point with where the idiot pilot shot at them, extending the line, here's where they must be going now. They might have another reason to watch what they eat. Everybody said you were killed by that fish. At our new location, and let us meet. Hopefully you'll be respected for it. It was for the scientists to discover. Okay. Now give me the real ones. We utilize. So we have kidney medicines carry some risk of defense. <laughs> <laughs> just recently told Congress to shut the gulag system. I really need to apologize to her. Oh, you don't need. I usually polish it to make her. Fen Hurdle finished third and NL manager. This is over with. Lineup, and you've got Loney and Kronsky, MVP of the Kopinski app and Iron Man. It's the virtual doctor's virtual job. Nothing's faster or easier. What have you been doing? Because it. Sure to check out more of my thoughts, cut my blog. Oh, and of course, they were able to get the bear back into the cage with. One on one. Thank you for joining us. A gold in them teeth, Clarence. What are you doing? Guys, I want every. Remind me again why we're using Caterpillar. Because, like, good. We need men and women. Damp on the three bedroom, two bath. In the house! We found a lake only two miles from the herd. This is far, dude. Nuts have hard shells. Gates announced General David Petraeus. That's me. But I'm not. going to be next week. I'm not going to put myself in whether you think this place is haunted. Let's just get on the flight next. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm sorry, may I start over? Right, the Weather Channel's Tetiana Anderson files. Knock down, baby, knock down. Neo to go. Ready? Delicious. First impressions having just tried half of it is that. Very bad. The ceiling. Buying some milk. Detail illustration. Are you a gamer at heart? Two, zero, zero, nine. Right, I understand good. you all are getting Zimbabwe. And at the same time, the Republican side as well as the Democratic side. We need it. You all right with it? I'm okay. Making big bubbles? New Dove Go Fresh. And it's yours, free. Then take it out like so. But I think I'm just going to end up getting... Work and girls. On the spot, pimple pinch. I have Christ to turn to. Write a book. We gain because meta excellence in vocal... Road on investigation. Use traffic. Neil's mistress are from Hitler's headquarters. The game's virus. Uh, an England coaching role. And Husky's head coach. Lost.com to break records. Spouse concert. With your hunting buddies. The uh, Emmy in it with a screw nothing. All right, show of hands. Confession time. How many of us in this room have engaged in just what we saw right there? The act of channel surfing that we just watched. Show of hands. Confession time. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Now, show of hands again. This one gets a little deeper than that first one. How many of you have found that act of channel surfing has changed your life? Show of hands. Yeah, nobody. Surprise, surprise. None of us in this room, I'll bet, have ever heard anyone say, you know, last night I channel surfed from dinner until midnight. It's all I did, and I am so glad I did. It was such a great night. I'm like a new man today. Nobody's ever heard anybody say that. And there are actually psychologists who study the impact of channel surfing, and they found that habitual channel surfing actually does bad things to us. They tell us that it decreases our attention span, that it decreases our ability to pay attention over sustained periods of time, thus impacting greatly our ability to learn. Channel surfing increases our feelings of isolation, and passivity. It is a bad thing. 
And so you, you hear that, though, right? And it raises a really obvious question in my mind, probably in yours as well, and it's this. If channel surfing sucks so many hours out of our lives and gives so little back, why do we do it? Why do we do it? And the answer to that, I suggest, is because it doesn't cost us anything. Channel surfing does not cost us anything. It is so incredibly easy to do. It doesn't take any real effort on our part whatsoever. Now, I want you to hold in your minds, if you would, that image of channel surfing, please. And then if you've got a text, if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't have a text, you can follow along on the side screens. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at the call of the prophet Isaiah today. And Isaiah was very likely the greatest prophet who ever lived. His ministry likely spanned 40 to 50 years. Much more about the life and times of Isaiah next weekend. And we're going to see today from Isaiah chapter 6 the truth of our big idea that reads like this. The radiance of God's holiness invites us, get this, invites us to place our hearts and our lives on the altar of worship and echo the words of Isaiah, here I am, send me. I leaned into some stuff that was written by Kevin and Sherry Harney, a guy named John Ortberg, as I prepared this message and this run of authentic messages. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Let's read this. This is the call of the prophet Isaiah. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. This is Isaiah writing. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. Okay, so now hopefully you're holding that image of channel surfing in your heads right alongside the image of one of the most vivid and powerful worship experiences that we get a glimpse of in the whole of Scripture. And I hope that that creates some pretty significant tension for you. Channel surfing on one hand, and then the other hand, one of the most vivid and powerful worship experiences we get a glimpse of in the whole Bible, the call of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. And I bring this up because over our course of time together today, we're going to worship, I hope, on the level that we see in Isaiah chapter 6. Because something that is increasingly convincing and increasingly convicting to me is that worship costs us something. Worship costs us something. Authentic, real deal worship is quite expensive. And in a world where channel surfing has become like a national pastime, we who follow Jesus Christ have a significant responsibility to ensure that we are not bringing patterns and attitudes of channel surfing into our worship experiences. Now I know 
that every single one of you who are sitting in this room right now paid a price to be here today. Those who are still coming in the doors right now, they paid a much higher price than you who are already sitting here, right? They had to like park some other place in the valley, right? A character building location they had to park in, right? But I know full well that every single person in this room paid a price to be here today. Some of you had long distances to drive to be here. Others of you had the significant challenge to get kids ready to be here today. Some of you, because of the incredible emotional load, the incredible emotional baggage that you're carrying with you today, it took every ounce of energy in your tank just to get here because of that load. So at some level, every single one of us who are here already made an investment to gather in community to worship God. I know that you paid a price. I never, ever take it for granted that you pay that price week after week after week. It just keeps happening. But then at another deeper level than that, the costly nature of worship goes way beyond just what it takes for us to be here today. There is a deeper cost when we enter into the worship of God. Because see, when we step into the worship of God, we are giving him the gift of concentrated, sustained attention on him and on him alone. It is not attention to me or my life or my problems, but it is sustained attention upon God. When we step into the worship of God, we're seeking to authentically bring the fullness of our beings, to bring everything that is in us, every emotion that we're carrying, everything, and we lay it at the feet of God and we submit it to Him. Worship costs us something. We all paid a price to be here today, but I'm going to ask a favor of you today. And that is to do everything in you to give God the costliest worship that you are capable of today because God is worth it. He is so worth it. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, if you would. Let's unpack the text just a little bit. It was in the year that King Uzziah died which is a very significant statement. Uzziah, see, he became king of Israel when he was just 16 years old. Think about that. King of a nation at age 16. And he isn't written, Uzziah isn't a, a lot about in the text. Most of his accomplishments are recorded in just one chapter in Second Chronicles chapter 26. You could look into that sometime. It's a fun read. And though Uzziah does not get a lot of ink, he was a military genius. He built and trained an army of over 300,000 soldiers. That's a lot. 300,000 soldiers. Under him, under King Uzziah, the Philistines were finally defeated by the nation of Israel. Other enemies in the region were subdued by him. Some enemies even brought and paid tribute to King Uzziah. That was a big deal. Uzziah was a builder. He fortified the walls of the city of Jerusalem, and under him, Jerusalem was finally safe. Uzziah was a technological innovator. The text tells us that he had machines built which were designed by skillful men, like engineer-type men that could fire arrows and sling very large rocks at oncoming enemies and such. Uzziah was an economic wizard. He developed a widespread system of cisterns for gathering water. He developed Israel's agricultural economy. And Uzziah, not least of all, was a tremendous spiritual leader. 
And the text tells us that the fame of King Uzziah spread as far away as Egypt, and that was a long way in that day. With the possible exception of King David and King Solomon, Uzziah is remembered as the most powerful king Israel ever had. And not only that, but Uzziah's reign spanned 52 years. Think about that. A 52-year reign. Just to put that in perspective for you, think about how many different men have held the office of the presidency of the United States in the past 52 years. That list looks something like this. Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush 41, Clinton, and Bush 43. We've had all those presidents in the past 52 years in our nation, but Israel in that same span of time had one guy, one leader, one anchor, and his name was Uzziah. And then one day, he dies. And it was a significant day. See, because Assyria was this emerging superpower in the region, and they were gobbling up little nations all over the place, places just like Israel. And the people of Israel, when King Uzziah died, he wasn't there to protect them anymore, and they're starting to get real nervous. See, what do you do when your anchor breaks loose, and you just feel like you're drifting out there? What do you do when whatever it was that you were counting on your money, your job, your tenacity, your relationship with other people, when everything that you've been banking on, when it crumbles, what do you do? What do you do? It's in those moments, see. It's especially in those moments when everything around us is crumbling, when we are invited into the throne room of God himself and we discover that there is one, capital O, one, who wears the crown. And there is one who reigns over the affairs of all of humanity. And it was in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah saw the splendor of God. And Isaiah, he saw the glory of God, right? And when he does, he sees that God is surrounded by these angelic beings. And he attempts, Isaiah does, to put words to those. These beings, he calls them seraphim. They use two, they've got six wings, and they use two of their six wings to cover their faces. Why are they covering their faces? It's because of the unspeakable holiness of God. We are told in the text that nobody can see the face of God and live. And these seraphim, they get that. They understand that. They're not even fallen beings, but still they cannot look directly upon God's glory. With another two wings, the seraphim are covering their feet. In Isaiah's day, feet were a sign of earthiness. They were what connected people to the ground. So covering them was a sign of honor and respect and utter humility. Remember when Moses was with God. Remember what God told him to the burning bush deal. Remember what God told Moses to do. Take off your Birkenstocks, Moses. You are on holy ground. And the seraphim in verse 3, they're crying out. Right? Look at what the text says. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And this is no small thing that these angels are uttering. R.C. Sproul, he gives us some great insight into these statements by the seraphim. Now, in English, you all know this, that we have a whole bunch of different ways to emphasize something to get someone's attention when we write. 
We can put things in capital letters, for example. We can italicize them. We can use an an exclamation point or multiple exclamation points. We can underline things. We can bold them. But in the Hebrew language, they didn't have all that. The Hebrew language has very little, if any, punctuation. The Hebrew Bible, as it was originally written, has no commas, no periods, no lowercase letters. There isn't even space between words. That's kind of like some of the text messages and emails that lots of you send, right? I've seen them. All that means that the main way they had to emphasize something in the Hebrew language was repetition. Repetition. Sometimes in the Bible, you'll see occasionally a word get mentioned twice. You know well that Jesus often said these words, truly, 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 I say unto you, he would say. And he did that as a way of getting the attention of those who were listening to him, helping them realize that what was about to come out of his mouth was of the utmost importance. But then on just a handful of occasions in the Bible, a word gets repeated three different times. That repetition, repetition, repetition thing elevates it to a manner of ultimate importance. And there was only one time in the Old Testament and one time in the New Testament when an attribute of God gets elevated to that level. The Old Testament occasion is right here in Isaiah 6. When Notice, we do not see the emphasis put on God's mercy or on God's patience, or on God's wrath. The seraphim saith, holy, holy, holy is our God. And when we come into the holiness of God, we are coming into the crux, we are coming into the very core of who God is. And holiness, it's an incredibly difficult thing to define. I think if we were to survey everyone in the room here today, the majority of people would quickly define holiness as simply moral purity, right? And that's a really good definition. It's a very important part of holiness, but it isn't the crux of what holiness really is. The Hebrew word is kadosh. Kadosh means something that is separate or set apart or holy other. See, I want you to imagine with me for a moment the most awe-inspiring moment in your whole life. Just get it in your head. The most awe-inspiring moment of your whole life. A moment where you were so amazed by what you saw and what you heard and what you felt. For me, that was the birth of our four kids. The most awe-inspiring moment of my whole life. I don't even do that well with like blood and gut stuff, you know. I don't like that. I lots of times see blood and kind of feel faint. But there wasn't a bit of that when our four kids were born. Not even a bit. I just was like, whoa. Right? You know what I'm talking about. Those of you who have been a part of your kids being born or seeing someone else's kids born, it is a whoa kind of moment. I want you to take that sense of wonder and that sense of mystery and that sense of awe that you've got in your head right now, and I want you to multiply it by, like, infinity. Do the math on that deal. Multiply it by infinity. And it's then that you just begin to get a glimpse of the effect that God's holiness has on a human being. Because God is holy other. There is nothing, there is no one like him in all of creation. God is an eternally self-sufficient, burning, transcendent, brilliant, perfect being. He is indeed holy, holy, holy. 
That's why the heavenly beings cried out what they cried out. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The whole earth, see, can no more contain all of God's glory than a thimble can contain Niagara Falls. Try that. And that's our God. That is our God. This holy God who we are invited to worship. And so for us to worship this holy, holy, holy God, see, it's costly. It's the precise opposite of anything casual. It involves an investment of ourselves. It means that we don't just make a casual commitment to worship. If I have time, if it's convenient, if I like the style, if I like the song, when I can get around to it, we don't worship God with any sense of a casual spirit whatsoever. We don't drift in and out of attention in worship like we're channel surfing. It means we don't speak words of worship with a casual attitude. Yeah, I'll sing this song about my profound devotion to God, but then I'll live the same old self-centered way tomorrow as I lived yesterday. Worship means that we do what the angels did in Isaiah chapter 6 and what they're still doing to this day, to this moment. We come with our whole person before this unspeakably, magnificently holy God. And we very carefully focus our thoughts and our emotions and our attention upon him. We see him in our minds. We see him with our hearts. The Lord who is seated on his throne, high and exalted. And that is where we focus our thoughts. We say, wow. Wow. And we express with our whole selves our wonder and our delight and our joy that such a magnificent being should exist because he does and because he is here. And so as a way of honoring God with your whole self, I'm going to ask you if you would please stand right where you are, and we're going to enter into a time of worship of our most holy God. And in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the living God. He sees the holiness of the living God. And he has a very powerful response to just such a sight. And it's very interesting to me and to a lot of other people that he's not excited about being singled out for something special. He doesn't think about how he can impress other people with his amazing spiritual experience. He's not thinking about writing and selling a book about the experience. Instead of all that, Isaiah says these words, it's all over. It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. And the NIV renders all of that, it's all over, I am doomed, I am a sinful man, into just one word, and the word is woe. W-O-E, woe. Not the kind of like, whoa, that's cool, woe. Like, W-O-E, woe is way different. That kind of woe is the prophetic word which was the pronouncement of God's condemnation and God's curse and God's judgment upon nations and upon peoples. Woe. But Isaiah isn't using the word woe in this instance in Isaiah chapter 6 toward anyone but himself. It's the only time we ever see a prophet say woe about their very own life. It's all over. I am doomed for I am a sinful man. And see, when Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he also had a chance to see the depths of his being, and it's dark in there. It is dark in there, and it wrecked him. It shattered him. 
When Isaiah looked in and he saw the true condition of his heart, the true condition of his life, his real thoughts and his real motives, his real desires, perhaps his petty cruelty, perhaps his unrelenting selfishness, he looked in and he saw all that and he was horrified. He was absolutely horrified. And that same stuff that Isaiah saw in him is the same stuff that's in every single one of us in this room. But most of the time, we don't go looking for it. Most of the time, we don't even see it. We tend to way minimize our sin, don't we? We way minimize the costliness of our poor decisions, the damage that we leave in our wake. And it's a lot like a teenager who borrows his or her parents' car for like the very first time, right? They just got their driver's license. They don't have their own car yet. But the kid gets permission, special permission, to take the car for the evening. And the parents, of course, you know this, parents, you give very detailed instructions about taking very good care of this car. But right out of the chutes, the kid goes and picks up some friends and they pull into a parking spot at this establishment they're going to go to. And the teenager drags the side of the car along a light post and the kid gets out of the car and looks at the damage and sees this really long scrape and there's a big ding in the back fender and a big ding in the door and a big ding in the front fender and this scratch that runs the whole length of the car like connecting dots between the big dings in the car right and the kid calls his or her parents and they say "I, I, I was being so careful I promise I was being so careful but I just did not see this 20 foot tall light post that's 3 feet around next to me I just, I just didn't see it there and I just slid the car right along now uh, the damage though is pretty minimal it's pretty minimal I don't think it's going to cost all that much to fix it I think they'll just be able to use a little rubbing compound and pound it out a little right and when the kid passes that information onto his or her parents they mean it right Like, it's dark out. The kid isn't looking real close at the thing. They're hoping that it's really not that big a deal, just a little rubbing compound, right? But the next day, in the light of day, when the dad gets in that car and he drives it over to the auto body repair shop and the auto body repair man, he has a whole different understanding of the extent of the damage to the car, doesn't he? The auto body repairman sees things as they really are. He sees the real damage, and he knows how involved and how incredibly expensive that repair process is going to be. It is not at all just an easy pound-it-out kind of deal. It's a whole new fender, a whole new door, and another whole new fender kind of deal. But we all have a vested interest, don't we, in seeing the damage as just a little pound-it-out deal, don't we? And Isaiah steps into the light of God's holiness and says, it's all over. Woe is me. I am doomed for I am a sinful man. And that is the true condition of his soul. That is the true condition of every single one of our souls. Now that Isaiah has seen God and he knows now what complete and utter holiness looks like, he then sees the extent of the damage to his own soul. Isaiah caught a glimpse of the full extent of the ruin and the darkness of his soul, and he is absolutely, I love this word, undone. He is undone when he realizes his darkness in compare to God's holiness. And the text tells us that one of those seraphim who were flying around takes a live coal from the altar and brings it to Isaiah, uses a pair of tongs, grabs a live coal and brings it to Isaiah. And Isaiah stands there 
And he allows it to touch his lips, which, by the way, the lips are one of the most sensitive parts of the entire human body. Just a little show of hands, confession time here. Anyone ever approach your mouth with a red-hot coal before? Did you just stand there when they did? Mm Mm-mm. No. Isaiah C. is helping us through this text in chapter 6 understand that there is very real pain. There is a sting to the process of confession and cleansing and repentance. There is a sting to it along the lines of a hot coal touching someone's lips. Lots of you know this. For some of you, this will be entirely new information. But I am a grace-filled guy. I'm a grace-filled guy. I operate from a base of grace. Journey Church is attempting to propagate and cultivate a culture of grace. And we're doing that because we think grace matters. And we think grace matters because God says grace matters. And because we are recipients of God's grace every single moment of every single day. That last breath you just took a moment ago, that happened at the grace of God himself. We are recipients of God's grace. And sometimes, see, in a culture of grace with people of grace, we can get into this pattern of thinking that receiving and experiencing the grace of God means that we don't ever feel pain over the wrong that we've done. But Isaiah learned, and he demonstrates for us, that even with immeasurable grace comes pain. Pain over our sin. Pain over what we have done. God's grace, it isn't just meant to free us from pain. God's grace, he is meant to redeem us. To redeem everything about us. To make us new. And this remorse deal, or entering into sorrow over our wrongdoing, is a significant, very significant part of the confession and cleansing and repentance process. If you were to talk with any judge or any parole board member about how much weight remorse carries in their decision making when it comes to sentencing an inmate, a criminal, or when it comes to whether or not an inmate is paroled, they'd tell you that remorse is extremely important. About 10 days ago, I said some terrifically hurtful things to my wife, Dana. It was in the context of a discussion we were having about some things that I did not think were going so well in our family from my vantage point, and, well, she needed to change those things. Maybe you've had this experience in your home, right? And the very moment that those terrifically hurtful words left my lips, I felt sick to my stomach because of the pain that my words caused my wife, who is my best friend, by the way. And Isaiah's words, I have filthy lips. And I live among a people with filthy lips. That resonates with me. I get that. I understand that. Because for the most part, it's the things that we say that brings to the surface the darkness and the depravity that resides right here in every one of us. And a while after I said those things to Dana, I had to go to her, and I had to stare her in the eyeballs, and I had to ask for her forgiveness, and that was no picnic, let me tell you. Not a picnic whatsoever. And I said, honey, I don't ever want to say those things to you again. I don't ever want to say those things to you again. And I want you to know that I'm going to do everything in my power with God's help to make sure that that never, ever happens again. You talk about painful. You talk about painful. 
And see, this confession deal, our confession, it isn't just a matter of acknowledging an item of information so that God can't hold something against us. Confession is not at all just like keeping a balance sheet. Confession isn't just mere bookkeeping. Confession, it actually stings, see. Confession stings. If you've ever lived through the pain of loving someone who is maybe an alcoholic or who struggles with a drug addiction or with any addiction, really, you know then the term hitting bottom, right? Hitting bottom. And hitting bottom is when the addict finally sees, and I mean finally sees, what their addiction has done. They see the addiction's true cost, the wasted years, the trashed relationships, the lies, the total and utter selfishness, the lowest of the low places where they've ended up. In short, they see themselves as they really are, and they say, it's all over Woe is me. I am doomed. And in a spiritual sense, they have hit bottom. Just like Isaiah did in chapter 6. And he doesn't at all like what he sees at the bottom. And that isn't just like some false guilt deal. It's actually the starting place of healing and of hope and of grace received from God. But it is painful. And in the repentance deal, we set aside our rationalizations, we set aside our excuses, we set aside all our denial, and we reflect on just what we've done from the perspective of the person that we've hurt, and we see it from the perspective of a perfectly holy God. Look at what James 4, 8, and 9 says. This is a heavy text. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Look at what the text is inviting us to do there. Let there be tears. Let there be sorrow. Let there be sadness. Now, those just aren't some ritualistic activities to try to appease God. This is rather about entering very deeply into God's sorrow over our sin, which acts as a very powerful motivator to be right with God, to be healed, to be cleansed, and being willing to pay whatever price we have to pay to get there to that place because that's where life is. I heard a guy talk this week about Christians from centuries past who used to speak of this thing called the gift of tears. Christians used to talk about this, the gift of tears about their sin. And these Christians of old, they would actually ask God for this gift of tears. They'd ask that what happened to Isaiah would happen to them, that they could actually see and feel the ruin their sin caused in their soul, and they they would see in the light of God's holiness what God has in mind for them to become. That the same fire that purified the life of Isaiah would purify them. And I'm going to invite us to do that together right now. I'm going to invite you, if you would please, to close your eyes and bow your heads for a time of private confession we're going to enter into. A time of private confession. to show you what you might need to see in yourself. 
Maybe it's an attitude of jealousy or judgment or anger that resides in you. Maybe you've got issues of motive. Maybe you did something desperately wrong that you must set right. Maybe it's your mouth that lies and slanders and gossips. Maybe your heart is cold and dark. Just use this time. Ask God to help you see just what he sees. That you might be able to feel what he feels because of the sin, because of the darkness, because of the ruin that is in all of us. And spend these moments confessing it to God, asking God for healing, for forgiveness. Something real important that I think you need to hear. It's a very big deal that we hear and catch these words. So just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we let these words from Isaiah chapter 6 verse 7 just wash over your life. Here they are. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are are forgiven. Those are the words of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7. Because see, our confession, it doesn't leave us in a place of guilt. It doesn't leave us there at all. Instead, confession opens the door to forgiveness and to a whole new beginning, really. And you might be sitting in this room today, and as you reflected in these past moments, you recognize that you've not ever stepped into the forgiveness and the new beginning that comes from your own personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I want you to know it doesn't have to stay that way. God, as a matter of fact, doesn't want it to be that way. See, God loves you so much that he made a way for you to have relationship with him. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to be your savior, to be the rescuer of your soul, to be your friend. And you can choose to put your faith and your trust in him. And you can begin a friendship with God today, right now even. And if that's you, if you're choosing to do that today, I'd invite you to express that to God. You can do that by praying a prayer, a prayer that goes something like this right along with me. God, thank you so much 
for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have. But today, God, I realize that you are perfect, that you are holy, that my sin has separated me from you. And God, I believe with everything in me that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I ask you to please forgive me. Please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to be my friend, and I want you to change me. God, I need you to clean my life up, please. And starting today, God, I make you the boss of my life. And that decision there for you to give your life to God, that's the biggest deal of your whole life. The biggest deal of your whole life. Nothing matters more, nothing carries more weight. And around here, it's such a big deal that we actually ask people to tell us when they made that decision. And I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. I want you to know that nobody's looking around the room but me. Nobody's going to embarrass you in any way. But if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, to begin anew, to begin a friendship with God, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me? You can do that right now, just right where you're sitting. Just make sure I catch your eye, if you would, please. I began a friendship with God just then. Yeah, back there. Way to go. Way to go. Right now, God is changing you, and right now, he is making you new. Way to go. And you, too. God is changing you, and he's making you brand new. Life will never be the same for you, ever. Way to go. And you, too, right there, sir. Way to go. God is changing you. You've begun a friendship with God that will go from this moment for all of eternity. God, we thank you so much for those who have just stepped into life with you, who've begun friendship with you. Thank you, God, for making a way through your son for that to happen. We pray that they would sense the difference that you make. That they would grab onto you and that they would pursue you with their whole lives. God, that you would bless them and keep them and protect them. God, they're yours. They're yours. And we commit them to your love and your care. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. And the church said, Amen. And I want you to know that there's one last final piece to Isaiah's call. God doesn't just cleanse Isaiah for Isaiah's sake, but Isaiah has a purpose and a calling way outside of himself. Look at what Isaiah hears God say, Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the Lord asking, that's Isaiah writing, then I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? It's a very interesting question that we see God asking there. Why would God ask that? It's not like he's in a quandary, is he, about who should go. This is so cool to me. I hope it is to you too. That God is inviting Isaiah. God is giving Isaiah the chance to offer himself for God's purposes. He's giving Isaiah a chance to offer himself for God's uses. No pressure, no compulsion. And Isaiah grabs it. 
He does it. He takes the invitation. He offers himself to God. Look at the rest of verse 8. I said, this is Isaiah writing, I said, here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me. And see, real, spiritually authentic worship always ends right there. Here I am, God. Send me. Use me. This worship deal is not at all just about an intense emotional experience and an accompanying mountaintop high. Worship is not about the emotional experience we have. Worship is about focusing ourselves, our whole selves, our mind, our heart, our soul, our strength on God and allowing him to do and say whatever he wants to do and say to us and then saying in response to him, here I am, send me, use me, please. See, worship is costly, way more costly than just channel surfing. And one of the costs of worship is a life that is completely and totally surrendered and submitted to God. And notice that God leverages Isaiah's submitted life. Notice in verse 9 what God says to Isaiah. And he said, that's Isaiah writing about God, and he said, yes, go. Yes, go. And God leverages Isaiah's submitted life and he sends him out as his messenger. And see, God wants to leverage your submitted life too. He wants to send you as his messenger, just like he sent Isaiah all those thousands of years ago. And so can I ask you, where and to whom is God sending you? Where and to whom is God sending you today? Now, I know lots of you sitting in this room here, you're headed out on like a summer project with Campus Crusade or something similar, for instance. And so for you, it is absolutely crystal clear where and to whom God is sending you. You've been focused on this for a long, long time. You know where and to whom God is sending you. But then there's a whole bunch of us in this room who are not at all as clear about where and to whom God is sending us to be his messengers. And so that's how we're going to conclude our time together today. I'm going to invite us to listen into God and respond to his invitation to us to go and be his messengers. And here's how this is going to work. The band is going to lead us in worship through music for the next few moments. And we're going to worship God through our giving during the course of that time. The ushers are going to come and we're going to get a chance to give to God tangibly. If you're our guest we just invite you to let that bag go right on by you. No obligation or compulsion for you to give. And as we're worshiping then through music and such, would you ask God where and to whom he is sending you today? Where and to whom is God sending you today? Where and to whom is God asking you to be his messenger? And not like next week or not like next month or next year, like today. Where and to whom is God sending you today? It could be that he is sending you to your neighbor or to your friend, or to your work associate, maybe to a family member, maybe even a family member that lives right in your house with you. Where and to whom is God asking you to be his messenger today? It could be with a certain group that you're in relationship with, an athletic team, for instance. It could be a place where you frequently go, a gym, a store, a coffee shop. Where is God asking you to be his messenger today? It could be that God actually wants you to go like to another continent somewhere else on the globe and be his messenger there. 
Where and to whom is God asking you to be his messenger today? And lots of times in the church, we ask these sorts of questions, right? When we simply say, all right, you got it. Now just go do it, okay? You've heard from God, now go. But today we want to add an element of declaration and commitment and intention to God about your intent to actually go and follow through and be his messenger. And so when you've heard from God in the course of our worship time together, I'm going to ask you to move out to these stations. There's several of them all around the room. And I'm going to ask you to commit and declare, declare to God your intention to go where God is asking you to go by writing on these shards of pottery and broken tile and such that are on these tables just a word or a phrase that describes where and to whom God is asking you to go. Just a word or a phrase that describes where and to whom God is asking you to go. It might be the first name of somebody. Don't write first and last names. Just, just write a first name. That'll be enough. It might be a place. It might be as simple as my job or my neighbors or my school. Whatever it is, would you simply record it there and leave those shards at those stations as your marker, as your declaration to God of your commitment that you're going to go just like God has asked you to go. So in the moment, the ushers are going to come by and we're going to receive an offering. And once those bags have gone by you, use this time to hear from God about where and to whom God is sending you. And when you've got it, go and put your marker down at those stations around the room. If you need to write on more than one shard, you, you can do that just a word or just a phrase that represents the person or the place that God is sending you today.